I remember a time when I was about in sixth grade, I think, and my parents left me home for an entire week. Not only were they trusting me, you know, not to get into trouble or cause any problems, but they were entrusting me, right? They were entrusting me with what were at the time some very important responsibilities. I had to feed and water the pets every day. I was to, to get the mail and bring it in. I was to water the plants. I was to do my homework without being asked. And probably most importantly, I was supposed to get up on time and, and make it to where I was to be picked up to be taken to school on time. All right. And I had to cook my own meals. All right. So uh, for a sixth grade old boy, old boy it's Chef Boyardee and mac and cheese the whole week. It, it was a dream come true. Now, we've all been entrusted with an important mission uh, in our lives at some point, all right? Maybe your boss uh, was gone for a couple of weeks and she entrusted you with a very important project, something she would have done herself if she had been there. Maybe you were in the military and your commanding officer gives you a special assignment. Maybe a dying loved one gives you one, you know, kind of last dying wish. Would you do this one thing for me, please? Well, this year we are looking at 52 of the most important verses in the Bible. And, and if you understand these 52 core verses, you're going to have a good working knowledge of the Bible and Christianity. Now, right now, we're looking at a series of, of core verses where Jesus looks to the future. And he entrusts us with several responsibilities. Or maybe he asks us to look to the future and, and to consider our own present lives in light of eternity. Now, if instead of doing core 52, we were doing core 10, you know, the 10 most important verses of the Bible, I think today's core verse would still make that list. It's found in Matthew 28. It's widely known as the Great Commission. Now, let me set the scene for you. This is one of Jesus' final moments with his disciples after his resurrection, but before he ascends back into heaven. Now, several of the most significant moments uh, that Jesus shared with his disciples happened on a mountaintop. And, and that's the same case here. It's on a mountain somewhere in Galilee. Other mountaintop experiences that were formative for the disciples were, were things like the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, some of their most intense and intimate moments they shared on the Mount of Olives. Now, this follows a rich biblical tradition of mountaintop experiences. Maybe you can think of some of them yourself. Think about Noah's Ark. It came to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. Or Abraham offering his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Or maybe the biggest one of them all, uh, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments directly from God on Mount Sinai. Now, this particular mountaintop experience, Jesus looks to the future, and he entrusts the disciples, and ultimately, he entrusts the church, that means he entrusts us, with one of his most important missions, right? 
So that's why this is the great co-mission, because it's a mission that we share with Jesus. He, he asks us to partner with him in achieving this mission. Now, what was Jesus' mission? Why did he come to earth? What was, what was his mission? Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to, do you remember it? Came to seek and save the lost. Right? That was his passion. That was his purpose. And, and here in Matthew 28, verses 19 or 18 through 20, he passes that torch onto us. And here's what it says. And Jesus came to and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, all three of these verses, this core passage, it centers on one core command, all right? And that basic command is this, make disciples. And Jesus appeals to, to his authority, which is all authority, all right? This would mean his authority because he is the creator of all creation, Right? And now, because of his death and resurrection, he is the conqueror of death. He is the savior of souls. And upon that authority, he calls us to devote our energy, our effort, our time, our money to one mission. And that one mission is make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Well, two things. A disciple is a learner or a student and a follower. Now, in Jesus' day, there were many uh, popular teachers that, that traveled throughout uh, the land of Israel, and, and they were called rabbis, which is the Jewish word for teacher. But think of them as kind of the first century equivalent of a, of a social media influencer or a podcaster who has lots of followers. And, and when someone really wanted to be devoted to a particular rabbi, you know, they would leave their home. They would leave their, their work to become their disciple, right? And they would spend time living with that particular rabbi, following them, hearing everything they said, watching everything they did. They followed them place to place and they shared life with them so that they could learn by example. It was kind of like an apprenticeship. You followed and you learned, right? And, 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 you know, some rabbis might have only two or three such disciples, and then you might have uh, another rabbi that's got dozens and dozens of such disciples. So a disciple of Jesus both learns from Jesus and follows Jesus. And one of the things that, that we are to do as a follower of Jesus is to make more followers. A disciple makes more disciples. We're not to take this journey of faith alone. We are called to reproduce our faith in the lives of others. And this is a mission that was passed on from Jesus to the disciples 
and and because they're the foundation of the church and we are part of the church or are the church it's been passed on from them to us now when we talk about following jesus right this isn't the same thing as following someone on twitter or instagram right it's not like you know having a library card where you go to the library once or twice a year if you say gave your life to christ and you show up to church on christmas maybe easter um that doesn't make you a follower of jesus following jesus is a wholehearted devotion to learn from jesus and to follow jesus a disciple is someone whose life is defined by who they follow now how important is this commission, this great commission that we've been giving, given? Well, consider this. It's one of the last things Jesus did on earth. And if you knew that, that you were sharing your last words with someone, you would want them to be important, wouldn't you? Well, that's how important this commission is. The great commission, in fact, is mentioned in some form in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts, that's five times right this is a big deal right by way of comparison jesus birth is only mentioned twice right so this is more important than christmas think about that now who is our commission for right who have we been commissioned to, to go make disciples of them well our commission is to make disciples jesus says here of all nations. Now, the word translated nations is ethnos. That probably sounds familiar. Um, it's where we get our word ethnic, right? It's all peoples, all races, all places, all nations, all languages, all cultures. Who is our commission? Everyone, anyone. Now, Jesus gives us an all inclusive vision of a worldwide church. We've been sent to all nations. It's a mission that crosses borders. It's greater than politics. It transcends race, ethnicity, and culture. The church is truly a global community of people who love and follow Jesus. We're an international body, all right? Christianity isn't just a Jewish faith. It isn't just a white faith. It's not just an American faith. It's a black faith, a brown faith, a yellow faith. It's a faith that invites anyone and everyone. Jesus died for all people. Jesus has sent us with this message of hope to everyone. And it cannot be stressed enough that especially at a time in our country where there are protests and, and riots in the streets and and then there are people that are demonstrating uh, uh, against NASCAR for banning the Confederate flag. We need to be reminded that Jesus is a savior for everyone. So that is our co-mission, to make disciples of all nations. But then the question is, how do we do that? Right? How do we make disciples? Right? For just a moment, let me geek on the Greek, okay? Grammatically speaking, 
Um, making disciples is the primary action verb in these sentences. It is the primary command. But in the original Greek, there are three what are called participle clauses that explain how to fulfill this command. Now, in English, a participle is simply an ing verb, all right? It's an ing action, reading, seeing, walking, talking, all right? Those are all participles. Now, there are three ing actions in our core verses this morning, even though they don't all have ing in English, all right? And they are going, baptizing, and teaching. You want to know how to make disciples? There it is right there. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Um, let's take a look at each one of these just a, a little more closely. Now, in your Bible and in most English translations, uh, when you read this core passage, it sounds like maybe go is the primary command. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But, but it really isn't. It's an introductory participle. If you were translating this literally, it would be something like this. Going make disciples of all nations, or as you go, make disciples of all nations. For Jesus' vision of a worldwide church to become a reality, we must first go, right? That means we're not to take the wait-and-see approach. This isn't a call to just kind of sit behind our four walls and, and just hope they come to us. This is a call for us to take the initiative. We are to go. We are to speak out. We are to act. That means you and I need to make the first move. We cannot keep our faith to ourselves. We must first go. Now, Jesus says this in a way that just assumes we're going, right? As you go, Make disciples of all nations, right? This means a couple things. First of all, it means that we will want to go. Of course, we want others to know. Since we love him, since we follow him, we're going to want what he wants. We're going to desire that which he longs for, and so we will go. But do we really want to go? Can I break your heart just a little bit? At least I hope this does. Sharing your faith has become entirely optional for far too many Christians. A 2018 Barna Research Group study found that only 64% of Christians agree with this statement. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. And here's the most frightening part about it. That number that percentage has fallen by 25 points in 25 years, right? That's the testimony of a dying church, folks. 74% of believers seldom have a spiritual conversation with anyone, right? Nearly half have never shared their faith with anyone ever. Now, how does something that, that is the heartbeat of our Lord and Savior become so optional and so unimportant to us? 
Let that not be us. Let that not be you. Let that not be Sunrise Christian Church. May we be a church that's just bursting at the seams to share what we have in Jesus. So number one, going means we're going to want to go. Number two, it means that we're going to share as we go, right? This isn't just go so that you can share. It is to share your faith as you go. Oh, let me tease this out just a little bit. This doesn't mean that you have to, you know, go to Africa to to be a missionary, all right? This means that, that you can share as you go about your other activities, you know? as you work at your job, as you go to school, as you're working out at the gym, you know, as you're fishing with your buddy, as, as you and some friends go to the flea market, as you go about life, you can share your faith, right? You can have spiritual conversations. You can be salt and light. You can be uh, speak words that are seasoned with grace. You can make disciples. Now, the second ING action that describes how we make disciples is baptizing, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them. Now, let me cover the basics real quick, all right? Baptism was a word that was brought directly into the English from the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo means to, to plunge, to dip, or to immerse. Now, in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, this word was uh, used to describe all sorts of things that were dunked underwater, all right? So fishing equipment that got, you know, dropped in the water, uh, dropped overboard, was described as being baptizo, right? Ships being sunk, fabric being dyed, uh, people drowning, were all described as being baptized. It also was used to describe a religious ritual where somebody would immerse themselves or someone else would immerse them underwater. Now, baptism itself existed long before Christianity. For instance, it was long practiced by the Jews. Uh, they even had baptistries. Right? They were called mikvahs, uh, often you know, made out of stone. Um, and they were used for ceremonial cleansing rituals that were prescribed in the Old Testament. Now, the symbolism of a baptism is pretty obvious. You know, we use water to cleanse ourselves, and so there's this cleansing symbolism in baptism. Um, John the Baptist took this cleansing symbolism and this idea of Jewish baptism, and, and he practiced it and preached it as a baptism of repentance, of being cleansed from your sins, right? It was a way to appeal to God to cleanse you of your sin. Now, here in the Great Commission, um, it's the first time, though, that this co is commanded as a practice for the New Testament church. Now, it's mentioned a whole bunch of times throughout the rest of, of the New Testament, but, but this becomes the first time that, that this is commanded as a New Testament church thing. Now, Christian baptism still, still holds on to that cleansing symbolism. We see this connection of, of cleansing and baptism in Acts 2.38, for example. 
where Peter is preaching to the Pentecost crowd. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament uh, teaching on baptism takes the symbolism even deeper, even further. Right? And so Christian baptism, for instance, becomes a reenactment of death, burial, and then resurrection, right? You know, you're, you, you die and then you're buried, you go under and then you come back up, you're resurrected. Because baptism is designed as a union with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's his death and resurrection that makes our whole salvation even possible. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say here that we are baptized into the church, that we're baptized into church membership. There's a lot of churches out there that practice baptism this way. But that's not what we see here in the Great Commission. Jesus says we're baptized in what? Right? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and that isn't just um, some formula that, that we use uh, when we're baptized. Um, you know, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, using it as a formula, that, that's certainly appropriate. It's been done uh, probably since the beginning. But, but that isn't the point here. The purpose is to impress on us that baptism, when done for the right reasons, joins us into the holiest and highest of unions, right? we become a part of a divine and eternal relationship. Because salvation is a process that involves all three members of the Trinity, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? So there's the Father, there's the Son, right? And the Son, in turn, willingly goes to the cross and gives his life. And that is the Holy Spirit who comes as the comforter, who comes to take up residence in our lives after our salvation to complete the divine work of renewal, restoration, and reconciliation. Now, I do want to point out something very, I, I think, interesting and important here. Notice that Jesus says that we are to baptize people into the name, singular name, of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a single name for all three. Um, there is a, an essential oneness to the divine community. And it's baptism that, that plays a part in bringing us into this divine relationship. You see, baptism, it's all about relationship, bringing you into a sacred relationship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't explain how all of this works and, and when everything exactly takes place in the precise moment. All right, I, I don't know all of that. There is something deeply mysterious, and let me use a big word here, numinous, 
about baptism. And I think as long as we're on earth, we're just scratching the surface in our understanding of baptism amongst many other things. Now, I was talking with, with one of our church members last week, and, and uh, we were having a conversation. And of course, being a preacher, the conversation kind of works its way around, around church. And, and this guy was explaining how he and his wife really feel at home in our church, but, but their background uh, is with a different group, a different tribe of, of believers. And one of the comments that he made was, well, you guys sure do talk a lot about baptism. Um, and then, you know, it pops up here in our core verse this week. So I, I, I called him up and asked if he wouldn't mind me sharing the story because I'm thinking that if he's wondering that, he's not the only one. There's, there's other people that are wondering, why do they talk about so much about baptism? And part of the answer is right here in today's core verse, right? We make a big deal about baptism because Jesus said that making disciples of all nations by baptizing them was a part of our primary mission as a church, right? That's one of the things that we're to be all about. And so based on nothing else other than the great commission, that should be enough. Now, if you're listening to me right now, and you've got some questions about baptism, right? Maybe you've never been baptized. You've thought about it. You've wondered if you should, but you've got questions. Uh, and call me, email me, text me, something, reach out in some way. I would love to have a chance to talk to you about being baptized. Or maybe you really want to be baptized, but, you know, the baptisms you've seen have all been in church in front of people, and the idea of, of getting dunked underwater in front of everyone scares you to death. You don't have to do it that way. Just, just give me a call. Let's talk through this. I'll answer any questions that you have. Or maybe you've been baptized, but you've got questions about your baptism. Did you get baptized the right way? Were you baptized for the right reasons? Or, or maybe you've had a period of, of time in your life since your baptism that you, you wandered away and you strayed from the faith, and now you're back and you're wondering does my baptism still count? Do, do I need to get baptized again? Um, any questions you might have, reach out to me, and we can talk about this important thing. So how do we make disciples? Going, baptizing, and then there is a third thing that's needed to make disciples, and that is teaching. We must continue to learn and grow, right? Baptism isn't a be-all and end-all, and once you get somebody baptized, you're not done. They haven't arrived. Um, but it's just the start of a lifelong journey of following Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. And so that's why the third part of making disciples is teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Think about this. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. 
but you're still learning, right? You're still growing. So in a sense, we are still in the process of being made into disciples, all right? It's, a, it's an already but not yet sort of thing. We are disciples, but we're still becoming disciples because we're still learning and still growing. Our goal in, in making disciples isn't just to get somebody to, to make a decision. It isn't just to get somebody baptized, get them dunked in the water, all right? We are to make disciples, and a disciple is a learner and a follower, and we are to grow in Christ. We are to mature in our faith, and so we continue to teach, and we continue to grow. Peter tells some new believers in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, quote, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, as, as a preacher, and especially as kind of a teaching style preacher, I may be a little biased, but I believe one of the highest purposes of the church is to teach, right? The church teaches. It's a part of our core identity. It is a part of our core purpose. The church is to be a people that teaches, a people that is taught and teach the Bible, a, a people that teaches Jesus, and a church that doesn't do that. It's not a church, right? It might be a club. It might be a political organization. It might be a charity, but it isn't really a church because a church teaches. And of all the things that a church teaches, Jesus must be at the center. Notice what it is here that we are to teach. Jesus says here, all that I have commanded you. All right? And this isn't just head knowledge. This isn't just so we can learn it and store it away up here. All right? It is so that you can, quote, observe all that I have commanded you. All right? That means do it practice it, live it. Our teaching must focus on what Jesus taught. Now, obviously, this includes uh, everything that was recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, reading those, studying those, knowing those is of utmost importance. But it also includes everything that was revealed to the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, all right? Because through the Holy Spirit, they were inspired to write down what Jesus taught them and pass that on to us. For instance, Paul told the Corinthian church, quote, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, all right? So the whole New Testament is to be the basis, the foundation of our teaching. Right? Now, we are a church. We are a church of Jesus Christ, and we are a Bible church. We are a New Testament church. Now, that doesn't mean the Old Testament doesn't matter or that it shouldn't be taught. Far from it. But the words, the example, and the inspired teachings of Jesus will always remain front and center, right? That's who we are. 
That's what we do. That's what we're all about because that's the mission that Jesus gave us. Now, making disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching, right? That is our mission. That is our purpose. That is our identity. Now, I want to leave you with an old story, and, and the story goes like this, that after Jesus had given this great commission to the disciples, he ascends into heaven, and it is the archangel Gabriel who is the first of all the heavenly beings to welcome Jesus. And Gabriel and Jesus, they look down on the earth, our little blue ball that Jesus had just spent 33 years on. And Gabriel asked Jesus, now that your work down there is finished, what are your plans to, to make sure that what you've done isn't forgotten, that the truth that you've brought to them will continue to grow, that it will spread? And Jesus answered Gabriel, well, I called some fishermen, uh, tax collector, a political revolutionary, and some others to, to walk along with me as I both taught and did my father's will. But Gabriel, he, he kind of shakes his head and says, yeah, I, I know about all of them, but what other plans have you made? And Jesus insisted. He said, well, I taught Peter and James and John about the kingdom of God. I taught Thomas about faith. I, I taught all of them when they were with me, and, and I healed people and performed miracles, and I, and I preached to the multitudes. Now Gabriel's starting to lose his patience at this point, and he's like, no, no, really? That's it? That can't be it. I mean, surely you've got some other plan in place, a plan B, when this bunch of idiots doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And Jesus looks at Gabriel with an assured smile on his face. And with finality, he says, that's it. I have no other plans. I am depending on them and everyone who comes after them. That is your mission. That is your purpose. And that is your identity. Thank you and have a blessed week.